0: Christine Handy is a model, author of the book Walk Beside Me, humanitarian, a mother, a mentor, and a motivational speaker. Christine's best-selling novel is in production to be a film, and she's going to tell us more about that, so stay till the end. Christine, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. And thank you for your flexibility. I know we've rescheduled a few times. So I would love for you to take us back to the very beginning. Where did it all start?
1: <laughs> That's a very broad question, but I'll, I'll start to <laughs> I won't take you too far back. Okay. Um... Yeah. Not, not burn. <laughs> Actually, that may have some weight in some of these conversations. Yeah. Right. Um, I you know I was diagnosed with cancer in 2012 at the age of 41, and I have no family history of breast cancer, and really had no ever inclination that I would ever have it in my entire life, not at 41, not at 80, never. And so it was quite a shock. And I was at the time I had just come out of a, another illness. I had a, a an Ill, Well, I had a infection in my right arm which was caused by a surgery and a misdiagnosis. So for seven months prior to my cancer diagnosis, I was fighting this infection, undiagnosed infection in my arm, which ultimately led to the fusion of my right arm, which is why I'm handicapped in my right arm. So when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, I had a cast on from my fingertips to my shoulder in my dominant arm. And yeah, so I was... Yeah. I was, I was honestly just trying to, my arm had just been bone grafted and cadaver bones had just been put in it. And so when I was diagnosed with cancer, I was just trying to figure out, well, what does my life look like now? Handicapped in pain. um, And uh, how am I going to take care of my children? How am I going to drive? How am I going to do laundry? How am I going to do, how am I going to cook? And so I, I hadn't really figured that out. And I was up in New York for a, Post arm fusion checkup with my surgeon in New York. And I was in the hotel room. And I had for months, as I had casts on my arm for several months, seven months to be exact, whenever I took a shower, I would have this plastic over the casts, whatever Mm -hmm. casts I had on. I had, makes sense. I had like 10 or 15 casts on over the course of the seven months. And so I'd have this plastic on, but my arm would be kind of outside of the shower. So when, in the hotel in New York city, when I have this enormous heavy cast on now, my arm has just been fused and it's very emotional and upsetting and confusing. And my arm is outside of the shower, but for the months prior, I'd poured liquid soap over my shoulder and just let that drain down my body to wash it. So in a hotel where they didn't have liquid soap. So I called down to the front desk and I said, can you guys bring me some liquid soap? And they laughed at me. And so I, I took this bar of soap and I was like trying to figure out how to wash my body with a bar of soap because I hadn't in months. And I washed over my left breast and I found a lump immediately. Like it just took like one little wash over with a bar of soap on my left left breast. And fortunately for me, the tumor was, you know, at the like right where I could feel it. I didn't have to push on my breast or anything or probably would have missed it. Imagine if I had been able to wash my breasts months and months prior to that, right? Yeah. The diagnosis would have been different. The stage would have been different. My treatment would have been different and on and on and on. But I try not to take myself back to that space because there's nothing I can do to change it. And it doesn't help my self-esteem, my self-love and you know, what I'm trying to do now. And so all of it was overwhelming and shocking. And in the beginning of the diagnosis, because of my arm fusion and because of the distrust I now had for the medical community, because this doctor had misdiagnosed my arm and he had bullied me for several months while I was going through this arm debacle. And so now I have no faith in the medical community. And now I have to go get an oncologist and a breast surgeon and go get a port. And what was chemo going to be like? And I felt obviously despair, which most of us do when we're diagnosed with cancer. And then, and it was confusing. Like, how am I going to trust these people? So I went into the breast cancer journey, unable to trust. And when I finally did find an oncologist that I trusted, it was, it made my journey easier because we have to have faith. We have to have trust in the system. And I think so many of us walk in so confused and unable to understand like what we're about to face, which is natural. And so if we don't have trust in the medical field, we're already behind, right?
0: What made you trust that particular doctor?
1: Well, I walked into his office and he said to me, oh, you're the girl with the arm. And that immediately diffused my, you know, trepidation. And it immediately put me into a place that I said to myself, this guy cares.
0: Mm, And so he read read your file, right? He read everything. It was
1: just a little bit of compassion
0: mm.
1: right that's yeah. all we need is compassion so i um and and anyway it, fortunately i found a good doctor
0: how did you find that doctor
1: um i it was i had a referral through a friend and you know when you're in the breast cancer space or any cancer space and you're looking for doctors how do you find them? I, I you know, a, a lot of that time when I was going through chemotherapy, I don't recall you know, so much of the journey, not just because of the medication, but also because you're so emotionally distraught that I've learned that you only remember the most important things. And so just during that time, as I was caring for, well, trying to care for my children, trying to care for myself, I, I think back and go, well, how did I really take care of my kids? I don't even remember. Yeah, You know, you just have to hold on to the most important things because you're just so overwhelmed.
0: What was the treatment plan, Christine?
1: I had 28 rounds of chemo. Uh, I had a port in my chest and I went each week. Well, as long as I was able to, uh, there were three times when I was not able to get chemotherapy because of white blood, you know, low white blood count. So it was 15 months of chemotherapy. It was a long time. What? 15 months. Wow. Did you have surgery prior to the chemotherapy? I had a lumpectomy because we were trying to buy some time. Those 30 days that we had to delay chemo because of my arm being grafted, I, we, we bought some time by doing a lumpectomy. But ultimately, the doctor said you need, well, he, he recommended I do a mastectomy, which I ultimately did. But originally, I just did a lumpectomy before chemo.
0: Where was the mastectomy with the chemotherapy? Did that come later?
1: It was at the end of my chemotherapy, which at that point my arm was semi-healed. You know, I mean, whatever healed means when you have a fused arm. But yeah, it was right at the end of chemotherapy, which is kind of shocking that they didn't push it back because I was so sick. I, I I think I was like 90 pounds and you know, wet.
0: (laughs) Well, that's unusual, right? To have the surgery after the chemotherapy. So maybe they wanted to do it as quickly as possible. I don't know.
1: Yeah. My whole situation was unusual. Did you need radiation? I had the choice of doing radiation or a double mastectomy. So I did a mastectomy in April of 2013, right after my chemo was completed. And then I did it the second side two years later. After I was able to kind of regain some strength because I did the second side, I did not have to do radiation.
0: Got it. And what did you do in terms of reconstruction?
1: So that's another terrible story.
0: (laughs) Oh no. But please tell us people learn from these experiences.
1: I had these really pretty implants that I really, really liked. And I, well, in 2013, when I had the first mastectomy, I had an implant that was soft and it wasn't rigid, you know, the rigid ones that were ultimately recalled. And in 2016, when I had the other side, they changed out the implants because I'm, I'm really thin and I'm very bony on my chest. And that implant was moving around a fair amount and causing me some discomfort. And so they put the, the rigid ones in, the allergen rigid, rigid ones later in 2016 and then ultimately those were recalled. They were the allergen implants that were called in 2019. So it took me about a year to have that surgery, but when I had that surgery, I developed an infection in my left breast cavity. And they gave me a pick line, I had a lot of antibiotics, life went on, pick line came out and you know, March of 2020 when the whole world was locked down, I <laughs> I came home from a walk and I had this like pain in my chest and I opened up my shirt and I looked down and there was this bright, bright red look like, you know, those red delicious apples, like this bright red look like your lipstick. And that was my breast.
0: What? And
1: uh, it was just, it was shocking and it was hot and it was warm and it was expanding. It was swollen and it was just my left breast. And so I texted a picture to my breast surgeon and my oncologist, and they both said, "Get to the emergency room immediately." Right now, that was the end of March in 2020. There was nobody going to the emergency room because most of the hospitals were not letting anybody in.
0: Yeah, all all nobody knew what to do yet. Yeah,
1: nobody knew what to do. So I show up, and I'll never forget the woman who was standing outside of the emergency room in a full gear, like you know, look like a suit. Yeah. 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 She said, do you have a fever? Yes. Do you feel sick? Yes. Do you, you know what, all these questions that, I mean, I guess could be translated to COVID, but I didn't have COVID and I I, didn't want to raise up my shirt and go, Oh, take a look at this. So my doctor, you're so
0: funny because that's exactly
1: (laughs) what I would have (laughs) done. Let me in. Okay. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, You know, exactly. So anyway, so I finally got into the emergency room and I, they kept me there for five days. They put a PIC line in my arm, massive antibiotics for two weeks. After I was in the hospital for five days, I went home with a nurse for two weeks. I mean, it was like this major ordeal. And then they said I was fine. And I had a, I had two doctors. I had a breast surgeon who was attending to me. I had a this other infectious disease doctor attending to me. But you know, they were distracted. Infectious disease doctors were never more popular than they were in March of 2020, right? Yeah. So so they have other things to do. And that doesn't excuse the fact that they let this infection go on for months, which ultimately it did. And by June of 2020, I was coming home from a trip that I went to see my son because I hadn't seen him in months. And I got off the airplane and I'm, I'm feeling really bad. And I just chalk it up to a long day of travel, and I'm tired, and working hard, and whatever. And when I get home from the air, airport, I lifted, I tried to take off my shirt because I was going to get in the shower, and my shirt on the left side was sticking to my body. Oh, and I, no. I finally pull open my shirt, and there's green pus dripping yeah. down my body. Oh really? Oh gosh! I had a oh. hole. The infection had eaten a hole through my skin from the implant.
0: And it was the implant that was causing the infection.
1: Well, yeah, the implant was infected.
0: It was infected.
1: And so I ended up obviously going to the hospital and within five hours at like one o'clock in the morning that night, there were five surgeons excavating my cat, my breast cavities for the third and the fourth time. Meaning it was like the third mastectomy and the fourth mastectomy because oh. they had to excavate the cavities. And there was no chance of reconstruction at that point. Because the damage was done. They, yeah. The infection had eaten away so much skin. And, and there was muscle no, tissue,
0: right? I would think. I mean,
1: it was a disaster. Oh. So now I have a, so reconstruction is a, is a hot topic for me. And now I have a, a concave chest. But I'm actually a model. I've been a model for 40 years. And I'm actually leaving tomorrow morning to go walk in New York Fashion Week their spring shows as a model, as a breast cancer survivor, as a concave chest, you know, survivor, thriver, whatever you want to call it. So there has been a lot of purpose to this pain. I'm trying to use it, you know, this collateral damage to breast cancer and, and try to share in my journey to show up for other women and say, you know what, this may not be what we want. This may not be look, look what, like everybody else or look like what you used to have, but it's still beautiful.
0: Yeah so yeah. that's the goal. And for the people who are listening and can't see you, I don't think anyone would doubt that you're a model. Like <laughs> you just have really classic looks. That's, and I can't see you. how tall you are, but I imagine you're very tall. Yes. Um you just uh you just really you have beautiful you. classic looks. Oh, you're you're very welcome.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to to show up and shine for the whole community. That's the other thing about going through chemotherapy and surgeries and surgeries and more surgeries is that for me, for a long time, I felt like I wasn't able to live. And so when I completed my treatment and completed the surgeries, I just said, I'm, I'm going to live each day. Each day is a gift. And so I, I'm just not going to live in fear. And I really haven't lived in fear during COVID because I just, I, it's a choice for me.
0: Good for you. Good for you. You mentioned your kids. How old were they when you were diagnosed and what impact did this have on them?
1: My children, I have two sons and they were 11 and 13. And I think we're still seeing the impact on them. I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's been really hard for them. If they, I mean, and again, I had several, I mean, I had three illnesses. I had my arm, I had a colon issue before my arm and I had breast cancer and a lot of treatment. And I think, you know, for that, I don't understand all the pain that they've gone through because I didn't have a sick mom. My mm. mom was always healthy. She never even had, a, she, I don't remember her ever even having cold. So for me to be the sick mom, which is shocking for me to even say that, because I was always a self-proclaimed athlete and a model and, you know, really revered my health and fitness. And the fact that I was sick for so many years of their life is 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 really hard for me to digest and and also hard for them. And they were also boys. So they weren't able to really emit right. How they were feeling. And so I think they just kind of carried this fear inside of losing their mom. And what happens when we're afraid is we push people away like a Mm -hmm. protective measure, right? Fear translates into anger. And so they became kind of angry with me for being sick. And, and that's, you know, psychologically that's kind of normal.
0: Wow. And how are they doing today? Because they're adults now.
1: Yeah, they're 23 and 21 last week. Uh yeah, they're I mean, they're on their own journeys for sure. It did not help that I was a, a sick mom for a long time, but I'm trying to make up for a lost time and just, you know, be there as much as I can for them. It's such a privilege to be a mother, you know, and, and actually when I was diagnosed with cancer, my biggest fear was not able being not being able to raise my kids.
0: Yeah, I I can imagine. Tell us because it seems like it's such a integral part of your journey. Tell us what happened with your arm, like what would cause the initial problem that led to the fusion? And, and even what does that mean?
1: Right? Well, I had a torn ligament in my right wrist. Like I said, I was a kind of a self proclaimed athlete. So I worked out a lot. I did a lot of yoga I was a very active mother. I had boys, so they were all playing sports. I was lifting big bags. I was doing lots of laundry and I have a small frame. And so eventually my wrist, my, I had a torn ligament in my right wrist. It's not that unusual. It's not that big of a deal, but it required surgery. So I did my homework and I went and met three different surgeons and I picked one of them who went to Stanford. Thinking to myself, oh, he's got the, he's got the degree, right? He went to the (laughs) right school. Right. And so, which by the way, is a misnomer. Don't ever choose a doctor based on where they went to school.
0: Ooh, let's say that one more time. So everyone hears you.
1: Do not ever choose a doctor based on where they went to school. I mean, you just read my book and you'll know why. (laughs) You won't believe it. You won't believe what this man did to me. He bullied the crap out of me. Two days after the cast came off, so six weeks post-surgery, the cast comes off, and it's a Sunday. I wake up, and my arm, my right arm looks like it's a thigh bone. It's swollen. It's the, the pain is grotesque. And I'm holding my right arm on my chest, unable to move, and I'm shaking in pain. Like really severe mm-hmm. despair and pain. And so I call the doctor on a Sunday and he says, you over iced it. Now, I don't have a medical degree. I didn't go to Stanford. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm going to take the ice off. Two days later, I'm now not eating or drinking anything because I don't want to get out of bed to move. The pain is so grotesque. So I say to my husband, I said, will you please call the doctor? I have to go in he doesn't really want me to go in. He's like, the doctor says you're fine. And now I'm listening to his voice. And then ultimately I'm listening to the doctor's voice. And the only voice I'm not listening to is myself. So I go in to see the doctor eventually. And he says to me, well, actually the first time I saw him, he wouldn't see me. his, His rehab doctor, like the, I can't remember the name. Anyway, one of his nurses saw me and said, you've, you've overused it. So she splinted it. And I thought, gosh, look at all these things I'm doing wrong. Right. And so they send me home a week later. I still can't get out of bed. The pain is still grotesque. My arm still looks like my thigh bone. And so I go back in and he says, oh gosh, darn it. You have this thing called RSD, which is basically your brain telling your limb, which in this case is your right arm that there's pain and swelling but really it's just a misfire there's really not and it's a condition called RSD it's
0: wait so it's not actually it's just in your head but it's a real thing
1: yeah i mean that's okay. what he said to me so then he sends me down to a pain management doctor who is in the same facility doctor's you know building and she concurs with his diagnosis so now i've had a pain management doctor concur with my main doctor now two medical degree doctors have said, you have RSD. So I think I have RSD, right? Who am I going to question? Well, I'm not going to question them. Right. And so they, he sends me far away from his office to a, a, a physical therapist, like far away from my home, but gets me a, now looking back, it's so easy, right. To see this. He, he gets me as far away from him as possible. So I'm now doing physical therapy way far away from my home, way far away from him. And for months, I go to physical therapy and they're telling me you have to go as much as possible because with RSD, you ultimately lose any flexibility in whatever limb you're talking about. In this this case, it was my right wrist. And so I was like going to physical therapy, fighting for my wrist, fighting to get movement in my wrist. And they were putting electricity on it and they were bending in it when it wouldn't bend. And. The pain was her- horrific. I started to lose massive weight. My hair was thinning. And for months, the doctor was saying to me, you're just a hysterical housewife. You just oh, listen- oh, no, <laughs> no, he didn't. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Now, le- now, let's go back to what I said in the beginning, which was when you're in pain or trauma, you only cling to the things that you need to know. And so I was emotionally clinging to what the doctor was saying. Cause I was just trying to get out of pain right, and looking at and looking back. It's so easy to see what he was doing to me. He was, he was bullying me. He was gaslighting me because ultimately what we found was that I had infection the entire time and at all the infection was eating away all of the wrist, my bones in my wrist, it ate away all the cartilage in my wrist. And ultimately when I, Finally got up the courage to see a second doctor. Every bone in my wrist was broken. And so the reason my wrist wasn't bending was because my bones had broken and fallen into a pile at the base of my wrist. And so I was in surgery that day to try to scoop out as much infection as they could. And then I was then I had to face the fact that my wrist was destroyed and there was no way to repair it. And so my wrist was fully fused which means I have no risk. Oh. Yeah, that was that was my life before breast cancer. Did you think about suing the previous- We life? did sue him. Yeah, we and did. we won. And by the way, we won for malicious malpractice. He knew I had an infection. He did a blood test and he hid it. He hid it. Why? Why? Pride, ego. A lot of doctors have this God complex. Like they, they don't do wrong. But-
0: It's not necessarily his fault that you got an infection. I mean. It
1: it was absolutely not his fault that I got an infection, but it was absolutely his fault that by the time he did the blood test, he had already been bullying me. He had already told, he had already misdiagnosed me. So he just wanted me to go away. from.
0: Got it. Got it. Okay. Okay. So he was trying to cover up, not catching it sooner.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Wow. I am so sorry.
1: It's crazy, right? And And I'm so glad
0: you sued. I'm glad you sued.
1: Yeah, Yeah, which by the way, I was suing him when I was going through chemotherapy. So this is a sad story. When I went to mediation over this lawsuit, I had no hair. I was in chemotherapy. And so he and the pain management doctor, I saw them in the hall. Like we were going between mediators and I was going to use the restroom. And they laughed at me. Like, what? They laughed at me when I walked into his office, you know, to pick him for this surgery 10 years ago. I had this long blonde hair and I was beautiful and all this stuff. And now, when I walked into mediation, they saw me and I have no hair. I'm going through chemotherapy. My arm is in a cast. They laughed at me.
0: I am so mad on your behalf, <laughs> and I'm just like sucking it in right
1: now. <laughs> oh my God. I had to really, really learn forgiveness, and I had to really, really have faith that vengeance was not mine. I, I, if, I, if I lived in that unforgiveness, it would have destroyed me.
0: Wow. Um, yeah. I think you're a better person than I am. I'm not <laughs> sure I could have forgiven
1: him. <laughs> you would because you, yeah, you would have because it would, it would only hurt yourself. Wow. You it's, if that's self-care.
0: Oh, I know, Christine, you might underestimate me a
1: little <laughs> <laughs> yeah. or overestimate my ability to forgive. <laughs> well, I would, I wasn't so sure my dad wasn't gonna go kill him. Christine,
0: you mentioned earlier that you listened to everyone else's voice, the doctor, the the pain management doctor, your husband, but you weren't listening to your own voice. So do you trust yourself and your intuition more now?
1: I do. Yeah. I had a real awakening after that happened. And I was diagnosed when I was diagnosed with cancer, I had to really go deep inside and do some introspection on why wasn't I standing up for myself? Why was I allowing people to bully me? And why was I allowing people's voices to be stronger than my own? And when I was going through chemotherapy and 15 months of a lot of alone time, right? When you're in treatment, the people show up for you and that's beautiful. But there's a lot of alone time. And so during that alone time, I would listen to self-esteem and self-love and self-worth podcasts, and I would read about self-love and self-worth. And so I began to teach myself how to love myself and how to stand up for myself. And for some reason along the way, and, and maybe it was, you know, modeling career and, you know, comparison and constant judgment that it eventually kind of hurt my self-esteem. I don't really know the answer to it, but ultimately my self-esteem was not up to what it should be. And when, after I went through treatment and I had fixed, kind of corrected my self-esteem, I was kind of unstoppable because I wasn't going to allow society to dictate my wealth or my health or my well being. I wasn't going to allow my husband or a doctor to dictate how I should feel or how I should react. And so I became my biggest cheerleader and my biggest advocate. But sadly, I had to go through those life changing events, like almost I wasn't maybe almost going to be here because of those things. Right. And and so I had to really go deep and figure that out. But I did the work. And by the way, that is a choice. If we work on our self-esteem, it's a lot of work, but it's worth it because we basically make our decisions and our choices and our reactions every day based on what we think about ourselves.
0: I think. Going back to your sons, that seeing you go through that part of it has to be so inspiring for them.
1: I hope so. Yeah. I, I, I would so.
0: think so. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And when I did sue that doctor, I, I was basically saying to myself, you have to do this for your sons. You have to do this to show them that people can't just do this to you and get away with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What was your worst moment in all of it? And you can just focus on the cancer aspect or, or all of it when it started with your arm, but you decide what was your worst, worst moment?
1: I think my worst moment was the despair I felt about myself. And what I mean by that was I had so many regrets that I had lived this kind of plastic, unfulfilling life before the diagnosis. And I felt like I'd wasted my life. And then when I was going through and, and figuring out like I was worthy of applying to Harvard, I was worthy of writing a book, I was worthy of my life mattered, be mattered to me. And I just was sad about that. I, I didn't feel that way for my whole life. I didn't feel that way until really the process of chemotherapy. And I was really grateful that I was pushed against the wall in a way because I was able to learn that self-love. But it was that regret and that despair that I hadn't nurtured myself for so long. I now have a picture of myself as a child in my bathroom. And I see that picture every day. And I literally say to that picture, I will protect you. And so that was my darkest moments.
0: I love the idea with the picture. It helps. Yeah, Yeah. it
1: helps. Yeah. Because I do want to protect that inner child.
0: What was your best moment?
1: I think the day that chemo ended. <laughs> <laughs> I had a big party that night and oh, did. my friends. Yes, oh my fun. god. One of my friends who's also a model came over and she did my makeup that day and I went to chemo fully made up and the nurses were all excited and and then I went to this party that we we threw and it was just a joyous day and I just Looked at it as like, this isn't over, over, right? Because there's a lot of collateral damage after chemotherapy and cancer that stays with you, but it was a new beginning and mm. I was ready for it.
0: Oh, what a great idea.
1: Yeah, it was a great idea.
0: I can't wait to hear the answer to this question. And again, you decide whether it's was- your arm or cancer. What is one thing you wish you had known at the very beginning?
1: That's a good question. Um, Well, I mean, I, I do go back to this all the time. I wish I had known my value was inside and not outside. You know, my beauty, which was kind of sustaining me for a short time in my modeling career or, you know, with what society valued me as, but what I was missing was the inner value and that I had to work on. And I wish I had known that.
0: I think that's one of the best answers I've ever heard. Thank you. I've done, I think, getting in the, in the 70, 80 interviews now. So it's a, it is. It's so important. And, yeah. and I left Los Angeles because I was surrounded by too many plastic people.
1: Yeah. You know, what we surround ourselves with is such a cliche that we will become. It's so true. It is. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it, it really is. If you could only do one thing, and I bet you have a laundry list, but if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U.S., Christine, what would it be and why?
1: I would dismantle the FDA today. Wow. Dismantle, dismantle okay. them. Walk us they through are, that. Why? Well, I mean, for instance, let's go back to the implants that I had that were recalled in 2019, they knew that they were causing cancer in 2011. The FDA it's written. It's in there. It's in there. It's in the, their legal documents. They knew it, but they didn't take them off until 2019. If they had taken them off in 2011, they would have never been put in me. They would have never been put in the 33 people who've lost their lives. And so take that as a whole, like that's not just specific to implants. That's, That's a small, tiny bit. But if the FDA is doing that to women who are putting implants in them, imagine what they're doing with other devices or other medications. Like in Europe, it's so much harder to get medication to go through their, their version of FDA. Why? Mm-hmm. Because there's more, there's more things in place that protect the patient, not in the United States. So I would dismantle all of it.
0: All right, Christine, are you ready for the Thriver rapid-fire questions? I'm ready. Okay. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach boys, Beatles, or rolling stones? Beach boys. What is one word that best describes you? Grace. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: Oceans by Hillsong.
0: Oh, I don't know that. I'm going to look it up. The last meal you want to eat.
1: French fries.
0: <laughs> Which kind? <laughs> parmesan. Oh, parmesan I like. How about the last person or people you want to see? My children. And the last words you will speak. I love you. And aside from cancer you, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also please tell people how to get in touch with you. And then I'm going to ask you about your book.
1: Well, I think there's a lot of breast cancer speakers out there, you know, and like my website and and other speakers, if you just Google breast cancer speakers, I think we have an enormous wealth of information and, you know, I like specific breast cancer organizations. I like learn, look, locate. I like uh, BCRF because I like them doing the research to find a cure. So I'm, I always put my money behind finding a cure, but I think there's people, you know, on a micro level that are doing great things and have a wealth of information. So I would seek those people out and those types of blogs.
0: That's really good advice. Tell us about your book. And why you chose to make it a novel instead of a memoir, because you did tell me it is based on your life.
1: Yes. So my book is called Walk Beside Me, and it is a fictional depiction of my life. And what I did was change the names and the cities to protect some people in my life. And uh, it's actually being made into a film called Willow the Feature Film, which is, it's very closely written from my book, meaning a lot of screenplay adaptations from books don't mirror the book very well. The screenplay mirrors my book very well.
0: Wow. But why choose to fictionalize it?
1: I just felt like I needed to protect my children with, Mm. you know, it's a very vulnerable story and I just didn't want them to say, "Eh, you know, you could have protected us a little bit more.
0: Got it. Well, Christine, thank you so much for coming on today and sharing your story.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you wanna share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Rivers Podcast. Real people, true stories.